James begins like this. Let's take a look. James, a servant of God and of the Lord Jesus Christ, to the 12 tribes in the dispersion, greetings. That's today's text. Today we'll use this greeting in verse 1 as a springboard into the life of this man James, into the content of his letter, and into the aims and goals that he had when he wrote. And then we'll consider what it means for us today. I think five questions will help us to start to get to know James or get to know him better if you already do. First question for us today is, why James? Why James? Why is it in the Bible? And why would we turn there and give attention to it? Some have actually wondered that. James' letter was not one of the earlier books of the Bible to be canonized, to be sealed up, uh, believed to be inspired by God. It was one of the last books of the Bible uh, to be included like that. Partly because James has some unusual features for a New Testament letter. James stands out among other New Testament letters. And, and some people have not always liked the way that James stands out or what's unique to him. Some say that James doesn't talk much about Jesus. Jesus is mentioned in verse 1. Chapter 2, verse 1, take a look there. That talks about faith in our Lord Jesus Christ, the Lord of glory. Okay, that's a big reference to Jesus. But that's it as far as the references to Jesus go, at least by name or by title. But if we dig a little bit deeper around in James, we see this word Lord pop up a lot. And sometimes that's referring to God in general or perhaps to the Father. But oftentimes it's referring to Jesus specifically. The Lord Jesus Christ in verse 1. Or chapter 5, verse 7, the Lord will return. What Lord is that? Specifically, that is the second person of the Trinity, we say. That is Jesus, the Son. In that same paragraph there in chapter 5, notice in verse 10, it talks about how the prophets spoke in the name of the Lord. The closest Lord in that paragraph is Jesus. And then verse 11, it says, The Lord is compassionate and merciful. Compassionate and merciful. A phrase that likely looks back to Exodus 34, where God first revealed his personal name to Moses and revealed his glory. And here, James likely applies it. To Jesus. So he does have stuff to say about Jesus. Some say that James doesn't talk much about grace. And it's true that here James is unique. James makes no reference to the cross. He makes no mention of atonement or that Jesus paid for sins when he died. James just simply assumes all that. And it's not good if every sermon or every book of the Bible or every letter we've ever written or every conversation we've ever had always just assumes the facts of the gospel. But sometimes we do that. Not every sermon can cover everything that can be said and sometimes should be said. 
Not every good conversation you have with a friend will cover the basic facts of Jesus' death, burial, and resurrection for the forgiveness of sins. Sometimes we assume that. Sometimes that's not good, and sometimes it's okay. And while James may not include those basic gospel facts, you should know that he is a man not unfamiliar with grace. What great lines we have about grace. Look down, chapter 1, verse 18. Of his own will, he brought us forth by the word of truth. That's referring to the new birth, regeneration, being born again. Verse 21 of that chapter. Receive with meekness the implanted word which is able to save your souls. Or in chapter 2, verse 5. Here, speaking of grace, has not God chosen those who are poor in the world to be rich in faith and heirs of the kingdom? Or in chapter 4, verse 6, he exclaims, I love this sentence, but he gives more grace. In chapter 5, verse 11, you've seen the purpose of the Lord, how the Lord is compassionate and merciful. So James knows about grace. But, some would say, he has a different view of grace. Some have said in the past that, that James is fundamentally at odds with the Apostle Paul's teaching about salvation and grace. Paul, in Romans 3, says, God justifies the ungodly apart from works. He justifies the ungodly apart from works. Now look at what James 2 says. It does sound different. 2, verse 14. What good is it, my brothers, if someone says he has faith but does not have works? Can that faith save him? Or verse 21. Was not Abraham our father justified by works when he offered up his son Isaac on the altar? You see that faith was active along with his works. Faith was completed by his works. In verse 24, it's put the strongest. You see that a person is justified by works and not by faith alone. The great reformer, Martin Luther, had trouble with what James wrote there. Early on in Luther's discovery of the gospel, early on he wasn't sure that James should be a scriptural book. Early on, Luther called the book of James, an epistle of straw. Like straw, it's just, it's filler, it's, eh. Even later on in his life, when Luther backed off of such strong sentiments, and by the way, he did back off of such strong sentiments, he included James in his German Bible, but Luther was still baffled with this mystery of how Paul and James could be reconciled. We know there's the word of God, but it sounds like they're saying different things, Luther said. And he said he would give up his teacher's hat, his doctor's beret, to anyone who could reconcile Paul and James. But it baffles me why Luther kept saying that throughout his whole life, because at times you find him saying things that reconcile these two things. 
Luther was always a bit frustrated by James, but if you put it in his own words, Luther said the same thing as James, like this. Truly, if faith is there, the one justified cannot hold back. He proves himself. He breaks out into good works, confesses and teaches this gospel before the people, and stakes his life on it. Where works and love do not break forth, there faith is not right. The gospel does not yet take hold, and Christ is not rightly known. He said that in 1522, so seven years or so after he nailed the 95 theses to the, to the church door in Wittenberg. I could offer quote after quote like that from Luther. It seems as though he got the mystery of how James and Paul could be reconciled, even though he didn't put it explicitly like that. James and Paul are simply going at the same thing from different directions. Paul was speaking about what was required for someone to become a Christian, faith alone, faith alone. And James was focused on the results of what comes out of a Christian, good works, not faith alone. The gospel results in good works, not just faith. To our words, requirement, that's Paul. Results, that's James. So why James? Why bother with him? Well, because he has a subtle but exalted view of Jesus Christ, the Lord of glory. Because while he may not re-explain the basic gospel facts to his Christian readers, he has a full-orbed understanding of grace. And he has a unique emphasis on the results of God's grace or the transforming power of that implanted word. Why, James? Well, another reason is because he is unusually practical and pastoral. He is at times really warm. He, he sounds as though he, he practices southern hospitality. Fifteen times he calls his readers brothers. A few times he calls them beloved brothers. James is a preacher. His letter feels like it was once earlier a sermon, maybe now summarized in its current form. James uses vivid illustrations. James may have more illustrations in imagery per square inch than any other place in the Bible. Listen to these. Horses, seas, ships, fire, birds, reptiles, fish, flowers, mist, travel, business, profit, death. And even a prostitute is an illustration in James. How about that? Many Christians through the centuries have loved James for the sheer practicality of his letter. It's easy to understand, people say. James is Christianity in a hard hat. Christianity with a lunch pail. James just plain works. And he tells Christians how to work. He, he tells us what to do, what not to do, and what to do. And some Christians gravitate towards that kind of teaching. Just tell me what to do. Have you ever left here on a Sunday morning and felt like that was lacking in a sermon? But what do we do? Just give us five things to do this week. 
Sometimes I should do better in giving you some things to do, and sometimes we should be content with what God's word is speaking to us at that point. Sometimes we have to change our thinking, not our actions. But, but James gets to actions. He tells us what to do. But be cautious. Be cautious, eager, practical, doer Christian. Because James may surprise you as we dig deeper into his letter. He is not chummy. He's not just warm. I think before a couple weeks ago, I would have pictured James in the 21st century on a stool. Maybe with a coffee table up here next to him, leaning on one arm about some practical things. But he's a preacher. At times he resembles more an Old Testament prophet, a fire-breathing Old Testament prophet than he does some sort of uh, soothsayer today who, who smiles and blinks too much. James is not that kind of preacher. He's not writing to get Christians to go from good to great. He's not concerned to tell them how they're missing out on their best life now. James may surprise you. And that's another reason for why James. Now as we ask other questions of James, the answers to those questions will kind of further bolster the first question that we're asking of why James. So we'll return to that. But the second question is, who was James? Who is this guy? He introduces himself in verse 1. As James, a servant of God and of the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, there are a few different James in the New Testament. This one is almost certainly the half-brother of Jesus. In that James, he did not always believe in Jesus. He did not always follow Jesus. In fact, that's an understatement. In Mark 3... Jesus' mother and Jesus' brothers go looking for him. They're concerned about him. They're a little embarrassed by him and the crowd that he has been garnering in recent days. And, and so they travel some distance to try to get him to come home, to try to get him to cool it, or even shut up. Mark says that they said, he's out of his mind. That's what James probably thought. In John 7, a crowd discredited Jesus by saying, even his own brothers don't believe in him. Now, eventually, Mary came along. Eventually, Mary, even before the cross and resurrection, she followed Jesus. She, in some way, believed in Jesus. But there's no mention of Jesus' brothers having any change of mind before the resurrection. Mary was there with other women at the cross where Jesus was crucified. There's no mention of the brothers being there as their brother was crucified. Not all the gaps can be filled in, but one piece of the puzzle is in 1 Corinthians 15. There Paul's arguing for the truth of the resurrection, and he mentions all the different appearances that the risen Christ made. He says, he appeared to 500 at one time, then he appeared to James, then to all the apostles. That's our James. That's the brother, James. Was that the moment 
that James came to believe? Perhaps. But whenever it was precisely, we know the outcome. We know the outcome for James. We know eventually James believed his brother to be the Lord Jesus Christ. And James was a changed man. Paul can refer to James as the brother of Jesus and an apostle. Not one of the twelve, but up there with them. And in Acts 15, you see his apostolic gifts and roles on full display. There in Acts 15, there's a meeting of the minds to try to figure out what to do about Gentiles becoming Christians. Gentiles. What do they need to do to enter this thing? What do we need to require of them? James is integral in the whole debate and even the conclusion The conclusion being that God was saving Gentiles simply through the grace of our Lord Jesus, not through circumcision or somehow becoming Jewish before. So that's James. An apostle, according to Paul, the chairman of the Jerusalem council, the standout pastor of the giant Jerusalem church. He was called James the Just by the early church because he was famous for righteousness, and he was the brother of Jesus. And yet, how does, James, how does he refer to himself when he writes this letter? The brother, James the Just, James an apostle, James the chairman of the Jerusalem council, the senior pastor of First Baptist Church of Jerusalem? No, none of those. James, a servant of God and of the Lord Jesus Christ. You want to know why you should believe in Jesus and believe in his word? Well, because of James. Because at first, Jesus' mother and brothers didn't believe him and were embarrassed by him and tried to stop him. But he appeared to them and they believed in him and they believed what he said and it changed everything for them. James, the brother of Jesus, died for Jesus 20-some years or so after he wrote this letter. I have one sister who is eight years younger than me, and I was not always a kind big brother to my little sister, unfortunately. Do you think I could have ever convinced her that I was God in the flesh? I was the Lord Almighty. No. Do you think I could have ever gotten her to refer to herself as my servant? Do you think I could have ever communicated to her and got her to believe that the the way we now fundamentally relate to each other is not brother-sister, but me as your Lord and Savior and King and you as my servant forever? (laughs) Well, it's blasphemous, right? And my sister would know it, and she would mock me forever insinuating anything like that. So, so how do you explain James, who didn't even call himself the brother of Jesus after the resurrection, even though he was, but he was the servant and the Lord, a servant of God and of the Lord Jesus Christ. That's who wrote this letter. So why James? Why bother with James? Well, because of the compelling and convincing source that it comes from. This transformed, now humble servant of Jesus, 
just happened to grow up with them. Listen to him. Third question. To whom did James write? To whom did he write? He tells us to the 12 tribes in the dispersion. And he says, greetings. Why does he address this letter to 12 tribes? You might know that's in the Old Testament predominantly. That goes back to Genesis. And it goes back to to Jacob and him having 12 sons. And from those 12 sons came 12 tribes or parts of Israel, the nation. Some would say that James must have been writing to Jewish Christians because he calls them the 12 tribes. But it's not necessarily so that James was writing only to Jewish Christians because Gentiles have been grafted into the grand plan of God. The heritage of the Old Testament is in some ways ours as Gentile Christians. So the New Testament often takes Old Testament terminology and identifies Christians with it, regardless of their ethnicity, Jew or Greek. Like in Galatians, Paul says in Galatians 3.7, listen to this. Know then that it is those of faith, that's what now defines it, whether Jew or Gentile, those of faith are the sons of Abraham. Galatians 4, verse 28, you brothers, like Isaac, are children of promise. And then in chapter 6 of Galatians, Paul calls the church the Israel of God. We're not a nation, we're not over there, we're here in the States, but somehow we're part of this whole grand thing. In Revelation 21, the picture is painted of that end time, holy city, the new heaven and the new earth, coming down it's a, it's a bride, we're told, and it's a city, and it's a temple, all these things. And, and guess what? On the gates are written the names of the 12 tribes. And on the foundation stones are written the names of the 12 apostles. So it wouldn't be that surprising if James writes to the 12 tribes in a kind of symblematic way, an emblematic way. Peter talked like this as well. Talk to Gentile Christians as a chosen race. He, he addressed them as a royal priesthood. Gentile Christians, a holy nation of people of his own possession. Now, Peter also addressed his letter in another way that's relevant. He, he, when he began 1 Peter, he addressed his readers as exiles in the dispersion. Exiles. That looks back to the days of Babylon, when the Israelites were in bondage in Babylon. They had been exiled from their land. They had a citizenship someplace else. They weren't home. They were exiled, and they had the hope of one day going home. And at one point, then, the people could go home. But not all did. Some stayed, for whatever reason, in the surrounding areas and the nations around Israel. Those people were called the dispersion the dispersed ones, the spread out ones. So Peter's taking those Old Testament terms of exile and dispersed ones to communicate to his Gentile Christian readers that they too, in a sense, are like that. They're in another land. They're awaiting their home going. They're they're waiting to be gathered back in. 
In the meantime, they're exiled, spread out, sojourners, aliens, and strangers in this world. And Peter may have been following James's earlier lead because James uses that word dispersion. He's most likely identifying Christians of any sort in any place, those who'd been spread out, especially those who had more recently in James's day been spread out due to persecution. In Acts 11, the people spread out from Jerusalem because persecution was so great and severe there. Isn't that funny how God works? He often uses persecution to get people, to get his people, and to get the message in places they might not have otherwise gone. So as they flee persecution, they bring the gospel to another place. James is writing to those kind of people. James is writing to people similar to us. So why James? Because it's for us, Christian. We're them. We may not be of the Jewish heritage, but we've been grafted in. We're now part of the people of God. We are exiles awaiting his return, awaiting our final homegoing. In the meantime, we've been dispersed. We're spread out in this world because of suffering, yes, and also for the sake of the gospel. Sometimes we are displaced. Maybe not geographically. Maybe we're displaced out of families because of Christ. Maybe someday we'll be more marginalized in society than we are today. We're not quite like those around the world who are suffering for Christ so severely, but perhaps we will see something more like that even in our land in days ahead. So we need James. The fourth question is what did James say? What did he say? And here I want to do a low elevation flyby on the book of James. I won't read any of this to you, but I encourage you to open your Bible and look down and see these things for yourselves as I just point out some of the main topics of each of the chapters. See if any of these things sound relevant to you today. See if these are relatable to you. And note how practical they are. Like in chapter 1, where James addresses those who were going through trials of various kinds and lacked wisdom in their trials. You see, in James chapter 1, James addresses those who struggle with temptations, with those who struggle to understand what's happening in temptation. James addresses those of us who struggle to do what we know to do. Some of us are doers, uh, sorry, rather hearers and not doers. In James chapter 2, he addresses those who, they have financial struggles themselves, and yet they look down on those who are poorer than them, and they look up to those who are richer than them. They're looking for opportunity and advancement in this world. James addresses those who had begun to coast in their salvation. Those who had believed that they were saved and forgiven, but had grown passive in living out the gospel in their lives. James spends as much on that as any other main topic of James. In chapter 3, look there, James addresses people whose tongues get them into trouble. Anyone relate? 
People who feel like their tongues are untamable, like that word, that tearing word came out of nowhere and now wreaks havoc in these relationships. James addresses those who think that they're wise, but their wisdom is the wisdom of this world. And the proof is in the pudding. It's divisive and problematic. In chapter 4, James, dis, he dissects quarrels and fights. He tells us where they come from and how they happen. He encourages us to pray. He explains why some prayers go unanswered. James also addresses people who struggle with their relationship to the world. Those who want to be liked by the world. Those who want to have what others have in this world. He rebukes those who judge others sinfully. We all do. He also addresses, at the end of chapter 4, he addresses those who make great business plans without verbally acknowledging that God is in control, not us. We're not even promised our next breath, let alone prophets and moving Chapter 5, there he comes to his heaviest and hottest rebuke. It's for the rich who trust in their riches. James has actually been building and intensifying two streams through his letter. One of conviction and one of comfort. And by chapter 5, it reaches its zenith. You see there, verses 1 through 6 of chapter 5, he goes hard after the rich who trust in their riches. And then verse 7 and following, he gets low and soft and gentle and tender with brothers and sisters who are suffering and waiting and wondering and just holding on till Jesus comes back. He rebukes those who make empty promises. You ever do that? James ends his letter by telling us how to care for one another in the church. We shouldn't grumble against each other. And when someone is happy, we should sing praises. When someone is sick, we should pray for them. Not just for physical healing, but ultimately also for their spiritual good and wellness. So we need saints in the body who will be willing to confess sins one to another when that needs to be done. And we need elders in the church, James says, who will pray for those who are sick and have sins to confess. And we need to go after brothers and sisters when they go astray. That's how he ends it. So that's what's in James. And guess what? That's what's in this church. That's what's in your life and mine. That's the stuff of life, especially for Christians. It's what fills our minds and our relationships. It's sometimes what keeps us up at night. It's the stuff we know that we need to address, but we often lack the tools or the confidence or the courage to address it more fully and get more serious about it. One last question, number five. What was James trying to do? What was he trying to do? We, we saw what he said. We talked about that, what he wrote. But what was he trying to do? Yes, what he said and what he talked about is practical and relatable. But what was he trying to do? What made James pick up his pen and write? Here are some options. 
Scholars are not all agreed. Was James simply ticking through a list of common problems that always need addressing? Things everyone wonders about, especially Christians? Was this maybe like a pastor's FAQ? Most common questions that have been asked me for these many years as a pastor in Jerusalem. Or was James unpacking wisdom? Like Proverbs of the Old Testament, many have said that James is the Proverbs of the New Testament. And James certainly talks about wisdom. He directly talks about wisdom. And in other ways, he shows it. Wisdom is the skill of living. And so maybe James is showing us the wise life. Or maybe James was trying to repackage the ethics of Jesus' teaching. There's some similarities to the Sermon on the Mount in the book of James. Maybe James had heard an early version of that before Matthew wrote his account and he was putting it in his own words. Or maybe James was writing to teach something like Christian Living 101. Here are the basics, the 12 most foundational topics and themes for entry-level discipleship. Or closely related, some say maybe James was writing to immature Christians to encourage them in maturity, to encourage them to grow. As one writer put it, to encourage them to be fully formed Christians. Well, there is some truth in all of those. If you got a book that studies James and led you through a study of James... It would suggest one or more of those things is the reason why James picked up his pen to write. But I think we can get a lot of clarity in the last two verses of this book. Would you turn there? You know, final words are not always important. Sometimes Paul ends one of his letters with greetings to various people, kiss everyone for me, that kind of thing. You know, you might end a conversation with a friend and say something silly, laters or something like that, or lates, as my kids sometimes say. Sometimes final words mean nothing. And sometimes final words are very telling, especially if they've already been said and are now being said more intensely. I now have two daughters driving real cars, by themselves, on real roads, with other people out there. I can't help myself. Uh, Whenever one of them is about to leave in a car, I always say, you know it, right? Just be careful. Just be careful. I used to roll my eyes when my parents gave me that mantra as a kid. Like, what am I going to do? You forgot to say it, so I'm going to go, eh! just be careful and yet oh I do it I do it because I know what my parents were feeling back then it's what I feel now and so when my girls are going to Target to get a pair of socks I say sure you can go get a pair of socks Uh, yeah have fun but I don't care if they get a pair of socks and I don't care if they have fun just be safe Just be careful. Just come back home. That's really all that matters, right? Just 
come back home. And so I don't mind saying that at the end. I don't mind if I have repeated myself. So here are James' final words in this letter. It's an abrupt ending. Verse 19, my brothers, if anyone among you wanders from the truth and someone brings him back, let him know that whoever brings back a sinner from his wandering will save his soul from death and will cover a multitude of sins. Oh, I think that's the key to the book of James, this idea of wandering from God. I think that's what James is trying to do. He's trying to keep us from wandering and wanting us to go after those who wander. Now, you won't find that English word wander in anything that came before in English Bibles. Unfortunately, that's so, because the same Greek word is actually found quite early in the book of James. So look back to chapter 1. Look, look at verse, the end of verse 15. Sin, when it is fully grown, brings forth death. That's how serious this is. And then verse 16, do not be deceived, my beloved brothers. Deceived? That's the same Greek root word as wandering in chapter 5. Those who are deceived, they wander. We wander when we're deceived. It's talking about going astray. This letter is about those who are going astray. It's about those who have gone astray, those who will someday go astray, and how we can keep ourselves from going astray by God's grace. You see in verse 22 of chapter 1, here it's not the same Greek word, but it's a, it's a synonym, same idea. Be doers of the word, not hearers only, deceiving yourselves, wandering away, going astray, because you don't do but only hear. Or verse 26, if anyone thinks he's religious and doesn't bridle his tongue, but deceives his heart, this person's religion is worthless. Professing Christians... Well-meaning Christians can deceive themselves to think that they have the real thing when they don't. Professing Christians can go astray from the confession that they once held so very passionately and they thought truthfully. But if they continue to go astray and never return, then they prove that it wasn't real from the beginning. A couple of verses help us out. Like in 1 Corinthians 15, where Paul says, Now I would remind you, brothers, of the gospel that I preached to you and you heard and received and you now stand in by which you are being saved if you hold fast to the word I preached to you unless you have believed in vain. That's what James is talking about. And Christians are saved by believing the gospel that Jesus died for them and that he can save them and it is truly a gift. And it's a gift that will never be taken if it's truly been given. And yet those who believe this gospel truly will keep believing it. Not perfectly, but, but truly. Like the journey song says, don't stop believing. Don't stop. That's it. That's 
in some ways, Christian perseverance. Don't stop believing. That's what James was mostly concerned about. And that's why he ends by talking about wandering. And that's where he began because some were deceiving themselves. Christian, are you wandering? Are you wandering from the fold of God? Come back. Hear the shepherd's voice. Feel his crook upon your neck and respond. Flee to his mercy and cling to his truth. Pray for his help. Is there someone close to you right now that you know you need to go get and you're just wimping out about it? Wanderers sometimes wander so far they don't see that they're away and they have no way of getting themselves back. Sometimes we need help. We need rescuers. James calls us to rescue the wanderers that they might be saved, that their sins might be covered. In the mid-1700s, a hymn was written that we still sing today. It was written only a, a few years after he came to confess Jesus, actually through the preaching of, uh, of uh, George Whitfield. The man's name was Robert Robinson. He wrote, Come thou fount of every blessing, tune my heart to sing thy grace. Streams of mercy never ceasing call for songs of loudest praise. The hymn has some lofty lines like that. It also has some searching, humble, and fearful lines as well. Prone to wander, Lord, I feel it. Prone to leave the God I love. Take my heart, Lord, take and seal it. Seal it for thy courts above. Looking back, some have wondered whether this man who wrote that wonderful hymn did, in fact, later in his life, give in to wandering. It is told that he once encountered a woman who was humming his hymn. He asked her what she was humming. And she went on about how this wonderful hymn speaks of this glorious truth. And it's then, it's said anyway, it's told that Robinson said to her, Madam, I am the poor, unhappy man who wrote that hymn many years ago, and I would give a thousand worlds to enjoy the feelings that I had then. A Unitarian did his funeral. We're all prone to wander. I feel it. I pray I don't finally wander from him. Help me, church, to not wander. And I will try to help you to not wander. And James will help us to not wander if we'll listen. Now do you see what this idea does to the whole book of James? If wandering was not just his final word, but his overriding thought all along, then all those relatable, practical points that we reviewed through those chapters of James, in every single one of them, what we would find if we reread them right now is that James tells us what's at stake 
all along. You see, in your various trials, you can get tossed around. You can get, you can start to waver. Or with joy in prayer, you can be steadfast, not withering away. Be careful. Trials have ruined some Christians. That tongue of yours, it's not just a handful. It's not just something that occasionally causes some tension. It could burn you to pieces. It's like a fire that burns us to the ground. Your wisdom, well, be careful, make sure it's the right wisdom, not the wisdom of the world, because the wisdom of the world is devilish and demonic. Be careful. Friendship with the world is enmity with God. Be careful. Are you making plans without God in them? All such boasting is wicked. Be careful. When persecution comes, will, will you wander? Are you living life out simply through all your possessions instead of simply waiting and longing for Jesus to come? You see, James isn't chummy. James isn't just practical. He isn't just unpacking wisdom for you or giving you 12 topics for you to be a better you. He writes so that you make sure this is real. He writes to tell you to be careful. He writes because we're all prone to wander. He's seen it. You've seen it too. He writes because some have wandered, and we got to make sense of what just happened there. He writes because when we wander, we need to hear the call to come back. And when we see someone wander, we got to go after them in love and see if God will be merciful and bring the grace for them to turn back and have their sins, a multitude of sins, covered. Let's pray for his help. Oh, Father, there is much here in your word. We have helped ourselves to a, a buffet full of truth, and conviction, but also promise and hope. Would you apply this Holy Spirit to individuals in this room in specific ways, ways that no preacher can, no way that James by himself ever could, but through your living word and the implanted word, Lord, bring conviction where that's needed. Give encouragement where it's needed. We pray for those in this room who haven't yet come to confess this Jesus. They haven't even begun the walk, let alone pressed on in the walk. Lord, would you give them faith today? Would you implant that word within them? And would you grow the seed of the gospel in their hearts and minds and lives today, starting now, that their sins would be forgiven that Christ would be their Lord and King and Good Shepherd. Help us now to stand and sing about your great promises to us and to ask for your great help 
for us. Amen. Let's stand. Let's sing that old hymn we talked about. Come thou fount. Come thou fount of every blessing.